1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: From Brandeis University, actually at Brandeis University this time. Welcome to Recall This Book, where star anthropologist Elizabeth Ferry, hey Elizabeth, hey John, and me, John Plotz, um, hey, um, invite scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Okay, so. Did you know that Sony Walkman originally had two headphone jacks since they were designed for sharing music, not isolating yourself within your own perceptual enclosure? Did you know that it was discovering the Walkman in 1983 that allowed William Gibson to come up with the concept of cyberspace in his path-breaking Neuromancer, and that early VR goggles were conceptualized as, quote, visual headphones? Have you ever asked yourself whether virtual Reality's main appeal is as a gateway to another world or as an effective way to shut out the annoyances of the world that you actually have to live in? If your answer to all of those questions is no, then you're like me before I picked up our guest Paul Roquet's amazing new book, The Immersive Enclosure, Virtual Reality in Japan, which is out this year from Columbia University Press. Roquet is an MIT associate professor of media studies and of Japan studies, and his previous work includes the 2016 monograph, ambient media, Japanese atmospheres of self. So Paul, we're really delighted to have you on Recall This Book. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Um, So we have a ton of questions that arise from your wonderful various chapters. Uh, I'd love to talk more about The Walkman. I'd love to talk about your thoughts about the way that VR's development has historically flip-flopped between the world of military and of consumer culture. And I also, because I'm, you know, a wonky Pre, uh, pre-20th pre century English professor, I have some prehistory of VR questions basically about the ways that past art forms from paintings to novels to films have sometimes been seen themselves as some kind of immersive medium, um, both positively as a pedagogical form of immersion and other times negatively as a kind of addictive enclosure. Um, but before we strap on our RTB goggles and head out into the wild. Could you just uh, kick us off by describing your book's key claims or its key findings briefly?
2: A starting point for this project was really looking at how much ambivalence there is towards VR nowadays, but also historically towards 3D media, 3D film, and other things in the past. And that always fascinated me. Why, even among people who are really into the idea that there could be this headset you could put on that would take you somewhere else and you would really believe it, they were also finding ways that it didn't quite fit in with their actual lives. So I was hearing from VR developers or journalists covering VR, that when they would put on the headset for work, you know, they, they couldn't see their kids if they were at home. This is during the work from home sort of period. They're being cut off from everything around them. Usually though, they would kind of quickly gloss over that. That's kind of the friction that'll maybe go away eventually as the headset gets smaller, and we'll be able to just kind of immediately jump into this other world. But for me, especially looking at the history of immersive technologies, um, the Walkman, as you mentioned, headphones and sort of other things um, that claim to bring you somewhere else, there's always this simultaneous um, bracketing off of everything that's around you. And, and for me, that was also an essential part of what VR offers, that it's simultaneously, as it's pulling you into some new p- space, reorganizing your senses to really bring you into that, provide a sense of presence as a lot of VR developers and, and promotional language uses. It's also cutting you off. It's putting you in an enclosure that that quite aggressively takes you out of the space that you're in. So that's what I came to think of as a kind of perceptual enclosure. And it really fascinated me just what a demand that is, that it's unlike a lot of media where you at least have a kind of air gap between you and the screen or you and the speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of move your head freely and, and reorient yourself in relation to it. Once something is right on your face, you know, even even if you turn around, it's still going to be there right in your face. You can't really look away. Um, so that made me think of whether we need to put VR in a different kind of lineage, going back to headphones and other, what I came to think of as a kind of head-mounted media history specifically. The specific demands of media interfaces that attach to you, um, mm-hmm. there's there's more of them emerging every day, um, but also thinking about what VR does as not only bringing you into a new space, but also off, making the offer to take you out of the space that you're in. So as I'm looking at how VR is emerging in Japan, um, as I've studied in, in past work, I noticed particularly there, there wasn't so much of the emphasis as in the US on transporting you somewhere else or simulating actually existing environments virtually through a computer. But it was more about, hey, you can go into these fictional sort of fantasy worlds and really be there and be surrounded by it. And also you can leave behind your own body, your own normal everyday appearance, your own sort of relationships, you can set all that aside no matter how small a space you have to work with and really go somewhere else. So that uh, affordance of VR in a sense um, Mm -hmm. was really much more foregrounded. Instead of being disavowed, as you see it happen a lot um, in the English language discussion, Japan became a place where you could really see people exploring what that offered. Um, So that, that appealed to me as well. A way to think about VR that was both a kind of diminished reality, and I use that term slightly differently than than VR developers would, but allowing you to to bracket off certain parts of your world Mm -hmm. at the same time Mm -hmm. as it was connecting into this longer, as you mentioned, a kind of longer media and literary history even of a kind of other world that you can go into uh, using the technology.
0: What is the particularity of the argument you're making here? Like, are you noting two pathways among many? Are you noting two ends of what is fundamentally like a linear scale, you know, between, uh, you know, enclosure on one side and immersion on the other, let's say? Or or are you making a kind of national cultural argument? Which Which of those things seems like the sort of the strongest thread that you're pulling?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I'm— I always try and be careful not to make it too much of a national yeah. binary or a regional binary, even. I think of it in terms of a spectrum, and I may have trouble figuring out what's at the absolute ends of those spectrum. Yeah. But definitely, um, on one side, you have people in VR using it for, to do psychology experiments, for example, where there's a lot of emphasis on being able to create something with a they call it ecological validity, sort of the, the real effects mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. actually being in that space, they can recreate a space and then run experiments on you to figure out if uh, how you're responding. Uh, versus in the game industry, for example, which has already emerged as sort of a primary space for VR development, um, I think that the kinds of approaches I find in Japan are actually much more common globally, I'm interested in creating these kind of other fictional environments and bringing people into them, making them consistently available to explore. So I think what I find in the Japanese case, and you find both both approaches in Japan as well, um, for sure, um, but I think it does offer, particularly linguistically, I think the the, the discussion in Japan than anything because it's not uh, indebted to this kind of western lineage of thinking about immersion mm-hmm. as a complete sort of perceptual thing that's going to transcend your immediate reality there's much less of that and that allows for a different kind of conversation to take place and a lot of those ideas i think are, are useful or could be useful for the, the broader global vr discussion as a different way of thinking not just about the technology but also about how it's already being used in many parts of the world
1: Maybe asking the question a little bit differently than John did, but it's kind of a it's a cousin question. You mentioned, for instance, um, a front. You make reference to other scholars and your own sort of thinking about a frontier kind of idea that that is maybe emerging in um, U.S. based VR. And also at certain points, you talk about things happening in Japan or in the. I guess particularly in Japan around, say, the economy or particular forms of um, uh, density, urban density. Can you say more about how you think about the relationship between this kind of contextual stuff and a particular trajectory of development of VR?
2: Sure, yeah, and I think it's a way of trying to put together a history of urban space or of everyday domestic space with mm-hmm. the media that becomes used within that space. Mm-hmm. So I was influenced here a lot by uh, the work of uh, Yoshikazu Nango who's an urban studies scholar in Japan. Mm-hmm. who writes a lot about, he calls it the kukan or the, the one person space as it emerges um, during the same time period I'm talking about, the 1970s and 80s. Um, and it's simultaneously as all of these individual electronic consumer technologies are emerging, like VCRs and mm-hmm. video game consoles, uh, as Just as um, there's a movement towards moving into smaller, literally one-person spaces in the case of studio apartments in Japan, um, mm-hmm. which first really took off around this time period. So this idea of almost a kind of cockpit that you're living in that has everything you need right nearby, um, that you can reach for your remote control and have access to all these worlds. But it's also, yeah. a, you don't need that bigger living mm-hmm. space because you have the virtual space there for you.
0: Yeah. So one of the things we talk about in the America in the 70s is the notion of a me the me generation. You know, like if the 60s were solidarity, radicalism understood as solidarity, the 70s are radicalism understood as like anime or living for yourself or getting divorced or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that same concept in Japan? And or and if so, how would you relate it to that technological change?
2: Yeah, very similar. So both a lot of urbanization, so people moving to the city from the countryside, but then also a shift towards more sort of individual lifestyles and mm-hmm. identities uh, leaving mm-hmm. a, behind of both sort of more communal activism and sort of community-oriented community work, but also even the domestic space of the family kind of shifts from that towards um, your individual lifestyle, which you're gonna do, sort of your mm-hmm. own media consumption habits, which you can buy to mm-hmm. affect how you feel about yourself. Um, I look in my earlier work, the, the Rise of the Walkman, in terms of personal listening uh, mm-hmm. habits mm-hmm. and people using media to really m- regulate their moods. Um, in a more personalized way, really emerges around the same time period. So yeah, I, I see it as very much in tandem with what's going on globally. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it was really interesting looking back sort of in the pre-VR moment, but already by the late 70s and early 80s, you see Japanese cultural critics talking about a turn not just to these very personalized mediated spaces, but also to a kind of virtual history. So they use that term, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, the virtual space of a, a history, rather than talking about existing Japanese history whether it's the, the post war, which mm. is very much present still at that time, um, or talking about sort of the 1960s, sort of political issues, and, and then into the 70s, all of the issues that were going on more culturally, this the, the virtual space of history sort of offers a different um, lineage. So, hmm. um, authors like Haruki Murakami, for example, coming up with very detailed sort of worlds for their fiction that um, feels real, it feels real on a sensory level, but it's mm-hmm. definitely very carefully distinguished from any kind of actual history.
0: Yeah. I, I, so actually I'm so glad you went there because I was thinking, you know, already thinking that my recallable book might be something from back in like the 16th century or the 18th century where this question of novel as virtual world making might be raised. But mm. the Murakami is a wonderful example, but can I offer like Sir Walter Scott? So, for example, the famous Waverly novels which were meant to be Scottish history, they 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 are meant to exist both within they're meant to be the past and they're also meant to kind of resonate with what it is to be a modern Scott living in 1815 which is modern for Scott so how hard how how much would you accept that kind of analogy or how much would you techno techno deterministically say that there's something new going on here because of the the quality of what this kind of affordances of these, what was it called, head-mounted environments, head? Yeah, the head-mounted display. Head-mounted, I yeah, yeah, about. yeah, yeah.
2: I don't like displays because it's, I don't want to think about the sound aspect yeah, as well. Yeah, um, I would split the difference. So there's definitely a, a really long history of this kind of desire to go into a virtual space, whether or not we use the word virtual. Yeah. Um, and I was really struck, both in the US and Japan and elsewhere, how often VR uh, engineers and developers constantly invoked Alice in Wonderland, and mm-hmm. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, yeah. That becomes a, sort of the primary reference point for uh, a space that you want to go into, yeah. like down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think there is something really specific about, as I mentioned earlier, sticking the interface to your face, <laughs> literally, um, and what that does in a way that um, a book, for example, does not, and, at least, and there's still some kind of space between you and the, the interface. There is some, I think, a, a more specific history there as well, uh, I think, too, though, I was recently went back and looked at a column by Ian Bogost on e-readers where he was talking about how compared to the flat screen of an e-reader, a book, at least, you, you open it up and you have a, a page on the right and a page on the left mm-hmm. and there's a kind of valley in between. There's a kind of immersive sort of mm. portal of that uh, in that it. space yeah, that as sense, well. Yeah. So there's definitely an earlier history, um, as, as many people have written about sort of panoramas and sort of earlier immersive yeah. devices. Um, but sticking it to the face, I think, does raised the level of uh, imposition or aggression, in a sense, uh, more than what was there before.
1: The, the reference to Alice in Wonderland is so interesting, too, because one thing I loved about your discussion was the kind of interplay between enclosure and expansion, right? Um, and that, I mean, one thing about the Alice in Wonderland...
0: Especially it's, through the Looking Glass, right? I mean,
1: well, actually, I was thinking of of Alice of uh, oh, Alice in Wonderland and the size issues, right? Oh, yeah. The the sort of trajectory of like stories where tiny little spaces become big worlds, either because mm-hmm. it's like a portal, like the wardrobe, say in in um, uh, the Narnia books, or um, or you become very little, and therefore the the tiny little space becomes a big space. That seemed to really be an aspect of it that resonated with the, that, you know, we cut off all this sensory perception in order for us to expand our mind.
2: Absolutely. And playing with scale has already emerged, I think, as a key aesthetic quality that a lot of VR uh, experiences play with. When the scale of a virtual object is just a property in the game engine, you can you know, slide up and down. Um, you can really play with shrinking the size of the view as a protagonist, you know, between, between right. human size or insect size or uh-huh. giant Interesting.
0: Yeah, but there's a long history of thinking about innovations in fiction as related to scalability, like naturalism. What Lukacs says about naturalism is that it differs from realism because it scale it, it scales human experience. It's not just at the human level.
2: Yeah.
1: Hmm. Maybe I can ask you about um, the kind of moral valences, and you know, one one aspect of that is certain kinds of moral panic that. That you see around, that were around the Walkman, and that that you see now around VR. Um, do you see that kind of thing in Japan as well?
2: Not as much. It's it's gradually emerging, um, but especially when Facebook purchased Oculus, you know, Facebook brought in all of this baggage mm-hmm. already, uh, and combining that with this very in, potentially invasive device, and mm-hmm. um, that's going to be on your on your face. Um, it, it raised a lot of those red flags, I think, in the the U.S. context, but there's Really remarkably little, uh, I think, awareness or, or journalism following that uh, in Japan. There's been slightly more over time, maybe connected with what's sometimes called the kind of tech lash in the US context of sort of being more critical of, of some of the social media companies, uh, which are increasingly sort uh, of involved in VR as well. So, not just Facebook, but ByteDance, for example, is emerging as the prime competitor, the owner of TikTok. So, there's, there's all of these issues that we're just kind of catching up on when it comes to data collection and surveillance and Mm -hmm. other kinds of social media issues that are clearly going to port into a virtual reality context as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Actually, can I put a pin? I want to come back to the question of um, augmented reality as opposed to this kind of immersive virtual reality, but just to pursue the point about what the cultural uptake or anxiety is in Japan. Can you talk more about these shows in which uh, people are imagined as trapped inside VR, So I actually, I've happened mm-hmm. to have seen Sword Arts Online, mm-hmm. which I find mm-hmm. incredibly interesting, but I had no idea that it was part of a larger culture of such shows, so.
2: Yeah, so Sword Art Online, especially the anime versions, of yeah. the anime adaptation of the, the light novel, really kicked this off on a more popular level, but it, I found a, quite a few examples of earlier stories about being trapped in a VR, or proto-VR yeah. VR machine, and that is the anxiety, I think, that you do see. Um, if you look closely at the narratives, In the same way that if you look at sort of American action movie history, you see different enemies sort of emerge from different places. Mm -hmm. Um, The the enemy in the the Japanese VR narrative is almost always an American sort of sometimes government, sometimes the Pentagon, sometimes the CIA, but Mm. secretly trying to gain access to these machines that could eventually operate as a kind of psychological weapon or manipulating people's senses to convince them of whatever they want to be convinced. I see. So
0: the problem is not the existence of it per se, because people opt into it. The problem is that it could be... Dangerously co-opted by some outside alien.
2: Yeah, who has yeah. who ultimately has control over it? Um, and this yeah. I tie back into, especially in the initial VR moment of the kind of trade wars between the U.S. and Japan, where there's a lot of anxiety over yeah. who's going to dominate this industry that's emerging. Yeah. Um, but now it's it's similarly there's a kind of geopolitical undertone to some of the narratives where the the risk is not so much that VR is going to take over, but that a particular organization or a country that we don't we don't totally trust is going to be the ones controlling all of our perception. Yeah.
1: And then the the counterpart of that is what you describe as a kind of techno orientalism.
2: Yeah. So there's there's projections going on yeah. in both mm. directions, yeah, which, which is are, it's fascinating. I think.
0: So the augmented reality point, this is really someone else's point, but I wanted to just kind of toss it to you. But I have a friend who, um, Eric Noyce, who is really great at thinking about what gadgets work and what don't. And he was talking about the failure of Google Glass. And he made a comparison to the Apple Watch that seemed resonant with what you were saying, which is he said that the problem with Google Glass is that it was augmented reality, but it was like sucked. It was sucking your your eyes. It was right there, whereas mm-hmm. the watch, even though it's not actually a watch, it's, like, all of these other things that are augmentation of ordinary reality. Like, I have a little text of, you know, I can tap a picture of my wife to text her, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but he said that that was super irritating to people when it was on glasses, but mm-hmm. when it's on watches, people accept it. Does that resonate with what you're saying? Because, in a way, it runs – I can see how it runs with what you're saying, but it also runs counter because it – it makes the glasses the bad guy,
2: the, the villain. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. this focus on sort of the visual imposition yeah. you know, much more serious than anything else. Um, yeah, yeah. It almost the watch is at least sort of at the end of your arm. <laughs> yeah, and that, that well, that's what he really said. He said the distance mattered. Way. Yeah,
0: yeah, because yeah, it, it's socially recognizable. You and know, you that we can we'll,
1: choose to some extent to interact with it.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. You can right. Get also, it, bring
1: it close. You can decide whether to look at it or
2: not. Yeah. And yeah. you can forget about it a lot easier, I think, as well. Mm. Right. Um, but it, the direction things are going in, I think all of these are, are merging. So hmm. there's been some interesting experiments with VR horror, for example, using something like a watch to oh. track your heart rate so it can know how you're responding and, and oh change the experience in, in relation to whether you're responding you know, more or less than it wants you to. So it's one thing about VR wow! Talk is it about kind of cybernetics. Expands. I yeah, mean, that's like the ultimate loop. feedback loop. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Right. Wow. Huh? But but so I guess I guess another way of asking my question though is that is Google Glass's failure is that it it's not immersive enough in a way? Like it's in between because it leaves because it's diaphanous. You know, it like leaves you partly gathering data from the glass and partly looking through it.
2: I mean, one, one way I tried to think through the historical question of when a technology sort of makes the leap from yeah. being something that's going to upset a bunch of people, like a, yeah. the I think of the bars in San Francisco that outlawed Google Glass because it was making everyone else uncomfortable. Right. And one reason I turned to the history of headphones was it was a really interesting sort of legacy of something that for a long time people felt quite similarly about. It was cutting you off, yeah. as we talked about before, but it was also heavy. Made you kind of sweat in the summer because yeah. the headsets were so heavy yeah um, and it wasn't there wasn't a space for that in polite yeah. society yeah. there was a, a great article in um, the, the local Boston context of somebody trying to take a headset Don't on the T and you know just being harassed and, and the, the police even took this seriously enough to I think they tweeted. This is not a good idea. You're making yeah. yourself a target for thieves. Yeah. Um, I think
1: it was the D-line in Brooklyn too. Yeah.
2: Right? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one response. Um, <laughs> mean streets in Brookline. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's this this group in Japan that, that immediately saw these – as soon as the standalone version of, of a VR headset emerged, they were like, oh, we can take that on the train. Yeah. You know, we can kind of play with it in between stations. Yeah. Maybe even have it re- relate to what station you're at. The, the content is going to change. And yeah. there was enough of a – a space for that to happen, uh, that it, it wasn't going to be seen immediately as a, a an affront to everyone else there.
0: That game that you play, where the the you have to walk around in real space to get the little animals oh, that you find. Pokemon, Pokemon, Go. Pokemon Go. Yeah, is that an, an anomaly, or is that does that point towards some other development of this?
2: I think it's similar to the Walkman in the sense that there's enough of a, a draw. In this yeah. case, I think Pokemon, the original sort of yeah emotional attachment many people have to that, uh, those characters. There's enough to sort of push them out of their comfort zone and have them walk yeah. down the street playing the game. And then you can kind of get used to it. And I think the similar thing happened with the Walkman and, and headphones. If there's enough of a drive to um, to get over that yeah. initial sort of people because looking down. Because the
1: music is familiar to you and therefore yeah, and that's that coming kind of in a different way. Being
2: able to define your personal soundscape in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you, breakdown, again, this super interesting history you draw on virtual, and also particularly the sort of different direction that um, Japanese understandings of virtual reality, but also of virtuality, you kind of connected it to this, um, to a distinction between a kind of Western tradition of, of essence right
2: mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the other term I, I had to do a lot of work just to kind of parse you know mm-hmm. the different flavors of of the virtual or of virtual as a as an adjective uh, more precisely so in japanese there's a few different ways it's been translated there's the kaso which is more literally kind of imaginary space that doesn't have the kind of platonic idea that there's a more pure sort of virtual world we can we can get to um, someone like Susumitachi was very against that translation it, has, it goes pretty far back um and it it comes through in the the history of how virtual memory in a c- computer science context was translated um and it's still still used today but for someone like Tachi that was completely wrong because the virtual in a uh, American especially but an English language context there's a sense of kind of essence that's there mm-hmm. so going back to like the um the Eucharist, if you really look back, so like mm-hmm. Martin Luther talking about the virtual essence of something, you can right. still have something really important that's there, even if physically it's it's some other material. Right. That does not exist in the castle context, so when you translate virtual reality as castle um, Genjutsu, genjitsu is just reality, um, it loses all of that baggage. To me it feels kind mm-hmm. of like baggage, but it, it, <laughs> it loses that context. Um, it brings it a little bit more into this temporary imaginary um, almost kind of layered space that's that's on top of the existing world, but it's something more temporary, something more illusionary. Mm-hmm. Um, fantasy. Basically fantasy, yeah. So it, in some ways, it taps more directly into the, the literary and, and sort of fantasy fiction mm. uh, history that we were talking about before. So
0: is the opposite of virtual in that sense actual?
2: For me, the opposite of the, the casso is something invariant, so something that's cannot be turned off. In um, some ways, some some huh. definitions of virtual... Go in this direction, but something that's always going to be there, regardless of whether you're attending to it or not. Mm-hmm. So you turn around, and it's still going to be there. Is a, a, a um That's so, interesting. so it's slightly different. So it's than, durable, or it's so or independent.
1: independent.
2: Independent. When you look at etymological dictionaries, they're very careful. I, I thought this was fascinating that that the caso, so this character for caso, is yeah. not in distinction to the true. So it's not yeah. true. It's not a true versus sure, false distinction. Sure. sure. But it's a uh, something that's, the cause. literally means kind of temporary, the ka and kaso. So it's something that's, yeah. that's temporary, that's provisional. There's one um, Japanese scholar who ties it back to the rock garden tradition and this idea that you, you're going to see other other landscapes emerge within the rocks and the sand if you, you look closely. Um, and you know it's not actually there. You know it's going to disappear this, as soon as you're, you know, you look away or you, you stop uh, attending to it in that precise. Uh, angle, um, but it still sort of has its own reality to it. Hmm. Yeah.
0: So I'm it's different than the,
2: the actual, I I yeah. kind of, I set aside the uh, kind of um, actual versus virtual philosophical discussion. Yeah. partly because it so rarely emerges within the discussions, yeah. the discourse I was looking at, VR developers or, or otherwise, um, the kind of Bergson zone and Deleuze and, and that yeah. uh, lineage.
0: I remember this discussion. So Elizabeth and I are both fans of this book called Coming of Age in Second Life. Mm -hmm. And I remember there's a wonderful discussion in there about the sort of things that can occur in second life which are nonetheless real, like if people fall in love in second life. That's very different from, like, you know, shaking hands with someone in second life or, you know, Mm -hmm. giving them, even handing them a $100 bill. But, like, you can get married in second Mm -hmm. life and it would be valid. So
2: That's, I think, what interests me as well, that it's there's definitely a lot of actual... (laughs) You know things going on. Yeah. Um, I, I recently watched the the documentary that said in VR chat uh, we met in virtual reality, which is might quite similar right. a lot of a lot well, of what Bolstorff was talking about so yeah. it comes back in yeah. the, uh, the VR yeah. context. Um, and there's certainly a lot of that. But what, what interests me, especially in the Japan context, is this idea that uh, the actuality you can find within the virtual space is going to be carefully detached and carefully sequestered from the actuality you might have the rest of the day, sort of outside of the headset. Um, so
1: that's that temporariness. you
2: yeah, so it's it's less suggesting. of an ontological question of sort of what's real and what's not, and more mm-hmm. providing a space, even if actually it's it's certainly the foundation is the same. I think it I think they would agree that it's still built on all yeah. of these real world material things yeah.
0: So, Paul, we're probably turning the corner towards home here, but I didn't i I uh, would basically wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about the um the military applications question. I don't think I have a coherent question there, but I like that you framed, you know the oscillation between. The space of, you know, Pentagon funding or governmental funding, and then consumer-driven demand. So, yeah, you want to tell us sure. how you think about that?
2: Yeah, that emerged as I was trying to come up with a coherent sort of sense of where how the, what this term virtual is doing, both in English and in Japanese. I think it's the same moment that the the very strong military sort of government-sponsored research context that all of the the proto-VR research that that term wasn't in use, but Um, Researchers were talking about virtual images and virtual worlds and other things before that. That had all emerged in a a government-sponsored defense department in the US context um, set of projects. So not only when Jaron Lanier sort of coined the term virtual reality, Gibson's talking about cyberspace, there's sort of a number of terms. uh, Myron is talking about artificial reality. All these words in different ways, I think, looking back now, are making a concerted effort to set aside, they're sort of detached the technology Mm. from that military Mm -hmm. context and Mm -hmm. represent it. So Linneo talks about bringing a certain poetry to the the field that wasn't there before. But also I think it's kind of trying to cleanse it of that history at the same time, that this could be your your personal fantasy space, not... uh, The sort of military hardware to increase lethality, as as some of the the documents.
0: Yeah. What, what's the Neil Stevenson line? One from Snow Crash. He has a different word. It's not the internet. Oh, uh, the metaverse. The, the metaverse, yeah, right? Of course. of course, of course. That's <laughs> come back. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, do you get any sense that the people are consciously doing this, or you think it's more just? Uh, I don't.
2: I don't think it's some kind of hidden strategy, but I, yeah. I do see um, as it's taken up more in the kind of West Coast sort of California context at the time. Yeah. There's a very deliberate moment to sort of reshape the conversation. And then Japan, it's, it's a slightly different direction. It's sort of more in the consumer technology, video game, sort of how do we make this applicable to mm. people's everyday life context that really emerges in there. So I try and trace this kind of gradual, yeah. st- several stages of retranslation of the term, which I think that the word virtual reality in its ambiguities allows for that kind of uh, Shift in context to take place because nobody knows exactly. Nobody knows exactly what it means yeah. <laughs> for quite a long time, and, yeah. and still today. Yeah, fascinating.
0: So um, this is probably a. A good moment to turn to the section that uh, we have called Recallable Books, where each of us names a book that listeners might enjoy that um, pertains to the topic of this fascinating discussion. So, uh, to grease the walls, wheels for you, Paul, um, maybe uh, Elizabeth and I will go first. So, Ferry?
1: So, mine is continuing on the on the Alice in Wonderland motif, I guess. Um and these questions of scale and size, and also embody enclosure within the body and expansion. Um, Madeline Lingell's *A Wind in the Door*, which is in Great her book. series of uh, of which *The wrink- a Wrinkle in Time* is the first one, where where they go into the mitochondria of her small brother who's desperately ill, um, and kind of fight a battle of um, maybe maybe a battle that feels more in the um, Japanese model of, mm. of VR mm. in a sense. Mm.
0: Um, it happens so. an incredible voyage too, right? Isn't that, that yeah. movie? Yes,
1: right.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be truly um, fictional nerdy and go back to Don Quixote and um, just to talk about. I mean you know, as an early novel that understands itself as writing against a tradition of people getting completely immersed in a romance. So the notion is that, you know, uh, uh, Quixote himself doesn't understand the difference between what it means to live in the world versus living in one of these romances that he thinks he's living in, so that the novel can somehow straddle that in a way that the romance can't, because the romance just is committed to full-on virtuality, I guess. And then the one thing I would say about that, just we didn't really talk about the Sancho Panza side of things, but Mm -hmm. I love that Quixote has this sidekick, Sancho Panza, who is just relentlessly, well, whatever the opposite of virtual is, whether that is like, he's durable. He's quite durable. (laughs) Um, He's just sort of there and material and earthy and um, often eating. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. It seems germane to me, but but Paul over to you.
2: Definitely. So I'm I came up with two both of which are maybe only partially accessible so I'm going to kind of do an either or. Yeah. One is unfortunately a lot of the work I talk about in the book has not been translated into sure. English but yeah. um, one I've, I think is particularly evocative of this earlier moment in VR is uh, klein bottle It's a uh, kurainotsubo in Japanese which riffs on this idea of the the klein bottle as this sort of thing that has no inside and outside. Yeah. Um, but it it's a mystery fiction sort of quasi science fiction about a, a play tester for this new um, immersive game system that eventually we realize is a, a mil- American military in origin um, but it completely immerses you it puts you in this kind of colonial Africa context and you have to sort of fight it out yeah. um, but it also really um evokes the the anxiety of an, in an older sort that these technologies are going to get so strong that you're not going to be able to distinguish between um what's inside the machine and what's outside the machine. So you spend a lot of the book thinking you're back in Tokyo outside of the machine, and then it's like, oh, no, you're actually still in VR. Uh, Uh, You're still there. Um, Ends on a really bleak note. Um, But for me, it's a really interesting moment and a a useful book, I think, to think about what's changed between now and then. Um, I don't think we really have that fear, at least not in the same way anymore.
0: What's the date on the book?
2: 1989. Oh, wow. So it's a Uh moment in in Japan, too, where there's a lot of anxiety about... um, sort of people getting too sucked into, into fictional context uh, as well. Doesn't use the term virtual reality, but you can tell they're kind of picking up on the, the, the signals that this is about to emerge. Cool. Um, the other aspect, the other collection of texts I was going to mention which goes back to the same moment, but I found really fascinating as part of this research to go back to was the earlier wave of VR criticism uh, in the early 90s, mm. uh, which I think is actually super relevant to what's going on today, but almost never gets cited, never gets read. Uh, so I wanted to, to give a shout out um, to that. I, I looked at a lot of the sort of early feminist critiques of virtual reality um, from this initial moment when it was first emerging. Um, a lot of it's still quite uh, relevant to What's going on now? It's kind of scattered here and there. There's there's a, a number of anthologies, um, future visions, immersed in technology. Um, there's quite a, it's it's scattered all over the place. So you have to do yeah. a little bit of digging. That's I would, would love somebody to kind of put together an anthology. So yeah, my, my book isn't doesn't exist yet, but yeah, putting that together. And I, part of the as we talked about the sort of jettisoning of VR ER history as that's happened again with the recent revival to, to sell it as something totally new that's going to transform everything, mm-hmm. we have really had to forget about this previous so-called failure of VR. But I think in the process, we've also lost all of this valuable work responding to it. So I would put a plug in for going back to that as well. That's
0: great. Well, fortunately, this is one of the reasons we like having a website that is associated. So if you follow the links in the show notes, you will be able to come to those books. Yeah, Paul, this has been a real pleasure, so thanks so much for taking the time. If you enjoyed this conversation, dear listeners, you might want to dial up RTB3, which is our 2019 conversation with Lisa Gittleman about new media. Um, Also, I think our conversation with Samuel Delaney about virtual world building and RTB7. And also, we had a wonderful conversation with Leah Price about um, sort of book history and also, you know, sort of children's literature as virtual spaces. Um, So all of those might be... um, Worth taking a listen to as well. Uh, thank you all for listening, Paul. Thank you so much for coming. And um, thank you. This is fun. Hope to talk to you again soon. Recall this book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.